Thanks for listening to this show from Aspen Public Radio. Archive podcasts, news, and more are made available thanks to the support of listeners like you. To make a donation of support, log on to aspenpublicradio.org. And thanks. This is First Draft on Aspen Public Radio. I'm Mitzi Rapkin. First Draft highlights the voices of writers as they discuss their work, their craft, and the literary arts. My guest is Lily King, author of four novels, including Father of the Rain, The English Teacher, The Pleasing Hour, and Euphoria. Euphoria is her most recent novel, and it focuses on a love triangle between three young anthropologists studying a tribe on the Sepik River in the territory of New Guinea. At the center of this tale is Nell Stone, a gifted, famous, and controversial woman whose character was inspired by the revolutionary anthropologist Margaret Mead. We began the interview discussing the genesis of this novel. I, I was really, I really stumbled on this one completely by accident. I wasn't even looking for an idea. I was writing, I just started writing my third book, um, Father of the Rain. Just, I was just at the very, very beginning of it. And uh, a friend of mine took me to a used bookstore and and it happened to be going out of business that day. <laughs> and there was a big closeout sale. And I felt like I should buy something because she had brought me there. And I saw this biography of Margaret Mead. And I thought, well, I, there's nothing else to buy here. So I'll pick up this thinking I would never read it. And I did end up reading it. And I was really captivated. I'd never taken an anthropology class. I I didn't know much about Margaret Mead, really. I mean, I, I knew about coming of age in Samoa. Um, but I just knew of it, really. I kind of vaguely had a vague idea of everything. And uh, so I started reading that. And then I, I got to this one chapter. I think it's maybe chapter 11. It's a really short chapter. And she's with her second husband, and she's up the Sepik River in um, the ter- what was then called the Territory of New Guinea. And she meets another anthropologist, and they have this sort of love triangle for five months. And I, I, I got to this part in this chapter in the biography, and I thought, oh, my God, I, this, this, what a great story. But I, it took me a long time to really accept that I was going to write that story, but I couldn't stop thinking about it. And once I read the biography, I had to go and read a lot of her work and her memoir and her letters. And then, and then this man that she fell in love with, Gregory Bates, and I had to read his books and read about him, his biography. And, and uh, I kept on taking breaks from Father of the Rain because it was a really hard book to write. And every time I did, I just sort of read a little bit more about Margaret Mead and take some more notes and get some more ideas. For a long time, I really didn't think that I was really going to write it because it was so out of my comfort zone in every single possible way. Uh, but then when I was done Father the Rain and I had to write a new novel, I thought, okay, I'm going to just give it a try. So Euphoria is based on an episode in Margaret Mead's life, but it is not a direct depiction, meaning this is truly fiction. I started from a place of historic reality with these three characters and you know, I gave them different names, thinking, though, that I would sort of stick to the real-life story. But honestly, the minute I started having dialogue and scene, uh, things that I had to completely make up because there was no record of that, um, they went immediately to fiction. And where they end up, my characters end up, and where the real-life people end up are two very, very different places. So um, I would have to emphasize the loosely, loosely based <laughs> Um, and sort of inspired by 
the life of Margaret Mead, just a five-month month period. Do you feel that people who are very interested in Margaret Mead, the real person, are upset at all that you sort of took these fictitious liberties? Or have you gotten any feedback about that? Are people expecting something that this is not? That's interesting. I haven't, uh, you know, maybe there have been a few people who were disappointed um, in where I took them, but I would say that there are many more who uh, were sort of preferred, um, not preferred that story, but who, because it was so unexpected, because they thought they knew the story, but actually I took it in a very different direction, I feel like it, um, it may be surprised and pleased people to kind of enter a more fictional reality. So in your own life, you never studied anthropology. You never took it in school. It wasn't a big personal interest of yours. No, it wasn't something I ever studied or I I can't even say I really even knew about it. (laughs) it, um, It slipped by me somehow. But I have to say that when you're a writer, you are in some ways an anthropologist. I mean, you're, you're, just observing, observing, observing the world. I, I think that we become writers because we're a little bit um, maybe hyper-observant and um, have always wanted to just kind of get it down in some way, you know, kind of record life. That that seems to be a big motivation um, for, for most writers. And I think, I think for me, I had... I had a family of origin, and then I had many step families, and I had to go back and forth between um, different households my whole childhood. And I think in that way, it, it was a little bit of a lesson in anthropology, and that there were different cultures. Each family had a had different ways of behaving, and I had to quickly figure that out and adapt so that it could all go smoothly. You're listening to First Draft on Aspen Public Radio. I'm Mitzi Rapkin. My guest is Lily King, author of the novel Euphoria. I thought one of the most interesting relationships in here was between Nell and Fenn. That is her current husband. And he is not very kind to her. I would say that his psychology, you know, from my armchair psychologist is he's insecure. Her work is so much more famous than him. Mm -hmm. They have very different approaches and he has a lot of ego involved in what he's doing. But you never said that on the page in terms of explaining it. You really showed it through his language and his actions and especially the dialogue between the two. And I'm wondering if I'm assuming that you were conscious of this, but how hard that was to sort of nail down his personality with his language. I don't like things to be spelled out for me. Um, I want to, I want to figure it all out for myself when I read a novel. So I do try to, I try to let the reader know in, in other ways and, and make their own sort of judgments. The way I was able to come to all three of these characters was I, I had to stop maybe a few chapters in and create a computer file separate from the novel and write their autobiographies. And so I wrote in each of their voices for about 20 pages, single spaced um, for each of them. And so I could, I could hear their voice and I could know their history. I started with their birth and I had them narrate, you know, their whole life up until this moment. And, uh, 
And that was a real a, a way for me to sort of explore what their lives had been like and what their character was sort of built on and what their voices sound like. And so that's that's the way I got to him. Very, very much off the page, really. How much of your writing is dedicated to that sort of research? Well, I do do it for most of my novels. I have done that in some way or another. And so I think I probably have about, yeah, maybe probably 50 single-spaced pages, you know, about all of them that I that don't go into the book. And when you're writing that, do you discover lines or pieces that do end up going in the yes, book? Yes, very much so. seems interesting to me from the way a lot of people write because plot is immersed, you know, in their creative process, but because you're separating out the people, it seems like a more concentrated form, like of what you're doing. It's like the frozen juice instead of the kind you buy already mixed up. Right. It's true. And also, there's something about then returning to the novel and to writing the first draft of the novel. And you you have all these memories that you now know about and you can allude to. And the reader doesn't necessarily know the whole story yet. And I don't know, it just makes me feel like I have a whole person there and not not someone that I'm, and, and sometimes you do, you figure it out as you go. But sometimes it's nice to have that, as you say, concentrated juice kind of, you know, behind you to, to draw from. You're listening to First Draft on Aspen Public Radio. I'm Mitzi Rapkin. My guest is Lily King, author of the novel Euphoria. So your three characters, Banks and Fenn and Nell, are all anthropologists, and they all have a different view of their work. Bankson, I would say, is more questioning of if you can ever really understand other people and if he has it, it has the authority to study them. Right. Nell is more empathetic and really wants to understand their world and has a lot of grace and kindness. And then Fen is more seems to be more coming in like maybe his way is right. He wants to possess something about them. Mm-hmm. And how did you come out, you know, when you were writing all these different views of anthropology, especially when it was a fledgling science, really? Did you come out feeling one way or the other? I think probably I, I'm more aligned with, with um, Bankson, but I, I think I'm more aligned with him in so many ways. <laughs> I think that's why he ultimately became the the narrator of this tale. I mean, I really thought that it was going to be Nell who was going to tell the whole story. But the minute I started writing Bankson and from his point of view, I connected with him so much uh, that I realized, oh, this is entirely his story. He's putting all this down. Even, even the parts that seem like they're from Nell's point of view, he's really creating it all. So the, I, I, yeah, I think I, I identify more with him and his way of seeing anthropology. And in terms of Nell, I mean, she's empathetic, but she also believes that she can capture them. She believes that 100%, that she can go in, see who these people are, and write it down, you know, kind of more black and white. And Bankson is all about the gray area. And I feel like Fenn, he wants to, he kind of wants to be Native, you know. (laughs) He's not as interested in studying them as he is sort of living the lifestyle. Nell is really the centerpiece of this novel, but it's told in Bankson's voice. Uh, Nell has the first chapter, and then we get her diaries, so we get little pieces of her life. But I think it's interesting because 
she was kind of portrayed through the people around her. So she still sort of remained kind of a mystery, I mm. felt. And I'm I'm wondering if that mirrors what you think about Margaret Mead at all. Yeah, I would say it does. I found it hard to to really access who Margaret Mead was. And a lot of that was because she, I think from a pretty, you know, from coming of age in Samoa on, she was very much in control of her own image and what she was putting out there. I mean, her her memoir feels uh, like she's not telling the whole story. <laughs> And uh, and certainly, I have I have a collection of letters that that came out fairly recently that hadn't been published um, in her lifetime or or even thirty years after her life uh, that that reveal a, a very different story. Um, and and so it was in some ways hard to access her, and it was hard for me to identify with her because she's like type triple A, you know, <laughs> she, she is, was so different, um, from me in a lot of ways. And I, I think, I think it was easier for me to watch her through someone like Bankson instead of trying to be in her head all the time. She says on p- page 55, she's having a conversation They're looking at the people that they're with, and she's saying, the meaning is inside them, not inside you. You just have to pull it out. And I'm just wondering if you could talk more about writing this line, what it means to you, that sort of thing, because I I found it a very compelling line in the book. I was really trying to get at this Western notion that, that, that I think very much existed back then in early anthropology, this idea that because they were quote-unquote primitive with primitive ways, that they didn't attach meaning to the things that they did, and that there wasn't... The Western perspective was very much that anything that came out of Greece and Rome, that was philosophy, that was, you know... um, we were sort of on this trajectory of thought uh, that was superior to all other thought. And I think, you know, Nell is trying to say, just because it's not in the language that, that we use and, and it's not written down and it and it's not, they their culture hasn't gone in that sort of verbal direction, but they still very much possess concepts of purpose and significance and deep thought, you know. <laughs> and I, I think that's what she's trying to get at, that these people are not any lesser for what the Western world sees as their gaps in development. What was your goal as you wrote this book? What What were you trying to really express? I was really interested in two people falling in love through their work. I was interested in the the dynamic between the three of them and in the way their sort of obsession and complete immersion in their work gave them a language to communicate with that 
brought them a certain intellectual intimacy and the way that intellectual intimacy led to um, emotional attachment. I'm always attracted to the claustrophobic situation. And my first three novels, you know, take place in houses and they're often strained, difficult situations that are sort of more domestic in nature. And this kind of gave me an opportunity to explore a different kind of intensity of relationship in a completely different setting with sort of a different language, this language of anthropology. Did you do a lot of studying about the natives? So they're up the Sepik River in New Guinea. There's three tribes that you mentioned, two that are explained to more extent than the first. And then of those two, there's the one that is takes place most of the book in their territory. Did you have to learn a lot about them? I did. I tried to. I, I read as much as I could find about tribes in the middle Sepik River there and, and, and about fieldwork in general. I read any personal narrative I could find about fieldwork. The, the anthropological studies themselves, they were helpful up to a certain point, but they can be quite dry and you know, scientific. <laughs> and I was really drawn to the, the personal narratives of what it was really like in the field. Um, but yes, I studied, I, I tried to to find out as much as I could about what tribes were like. And luckily, M- Margaret Mead wrote the book Sex and Temperament about the three tribes that she studied in that region, tribes that, that are sort of like the ones in the book. But I didn't, I didn't name them. I didn't I wasn't trying to recreate real-life tribes, so I gave them fictional names, and I gave them fictional characteristics when I needed to. I, I, I drew on my research, but I also made things up a lot about the tribes. You're listening to First Draft on Aspen Public Radio. I'm Mitzi Rapkin. My guest is Lily King, author of the novel Euphoria. I'm wondering if you could read a passage from a writer that influenced you. There was... A time in my life, let's see, when was that? In the early 90s, when I was working in a used bookstore in Menlo Park, California, and I stumbled on a writer named Shirley Hazard. And she has really been such a pole star for me for years and years. And this is the first book that I ever read of hers, the first one I found in, in the used bookstore called Wessex Books. And it's called The Evening of the Holiday. And I thought I would just read from the first chapter. Tancredi, Gabriella said to her brother, you must show them the fountain. All in good time, my dear, he replied irritably. Let's have our tea in peace. They were not really having tea. The word referred only to the hour. Italians are not good at entertaining in their houses in the late afternoon. It is is precisely the time when they would normally be rousing themselves from the siesta and looking forward to the evening in the cafe. Also, they don't quite know what to serve. Tea, if it's done properly, should be an ambitious affair with cakes and scones, which they would not dream of providing. And they have never pretended to be sherry drinkers, which would be the convenient way out. So one is likely to be confronted, as on this afternoon, with half a bottle of sweet vermouth and a plateful of stale macaroons. Tancredi had grown up in Sicily, where no entertaining is ever done in the summer afternoons, where there's a solitary, almost therapeutic drinking of lemonade or almond milk in darkened rooms before the sun goes down. He regarded the afternoon as something to be slept through. Here in the north, however, shops and businesses reopened early at four o'clock. He was an architect, and his work was not much affected by the summer exodus. 
On any other day, he would have evaded the tea party by returning to his office in the town. But today there was a religious holiday, the Feast of the Ascension, and here he was pinned to a sofa among the women and the aged, like someone left behind during a war. He had been staying here in his sister's house since the early spring. The reason he gave for this arrangement to others and sometimes to himself was the proximity of the house to the town. His own villa was well out in the countryside, and the company it gave his sister. However, as he traveled back and forth to his villa for years without mentioning the inconvenience, and as his his attitude toward his sister left something to be desired in the way of companionship, it was generally assumed that he found his deserted house intolerable since his wife had left him. So tell me a little bit about why you chose this. I love this book because of the way she tells this very simple story of a woman staying in Italy with her aunt and meeting an older man. So much of why they can't be together is not explained, but it's felt. And she's doing so many things so right in this novel. She switches back and forth between their perspectives so fluidly you don't even know it's happening masterfully. She creates a um, a beauty, uh, you know, it's a beautiful place, but she makes all of their interactions so stark and so beautiful and and so moving. There's her old aunt who's sort of slowly dying is um, is an amazing character with sort of a wealth of memories that come out in very subtle ways. And I don't know, I, I just, I go back to this book all the time. I keep it on my desk while I'm writing and I I can open any page and just see how beautiful it is and remember what beautiful writing is. It's it's such a gift to me. Can you read something that you wrote? Um maybe it was something that was tricky to write and turned out better than the first draft or something you um feel you succeeded at? Yes, I thought that I would read the beginning of chapter two of Euphoria, because that was truly a surprise to me. I really did think that this novel, when I was first writing it, was going to be told from my character Nell's perspective, and that that was not going to change through the whole novel. And um, and I just wrote the first draft of chapter two, just to get a sense of Bankson, but not because he was going to narrate the book. I, I, I thought it I thought maybe I would just have this one little moment and then we would go back to her and that would be the end of it. But I just was was kind of one of those explorations where I just needed to find out who he was and what he was thinking because I hadn't introduced him yet. And uh, so I'll just read um, a little bit of that. Chapter two. Three days earlier, I'd gone to the river to drown myself. Are you serious, Andy? The question beat through my body at regular intervals, sometimes in my own voice, sometimes in one of my brothers. Martin's full of the irony of the situation, John's more concerned but still with a bit of an eyebrow raised. There was a thinness to the air as I moved through the bush beyond my village, northwest, toward an empty spot on the water. A few steps closer to London, just a few. Hello, Mum. Goodbye, Mum. I loved you. I did before you drove me out of the bleeding hemisphere. I wasn't sure I was taking in oxygen. I couldn't feel my tongue. He can't feel his tongue, what? I could hear Martin call to John in the voice of our old cook, Mary. John was laughing too much to answer. The stones were ridiculous and clacked loudly against my thighs. 
Now my brothers were laughing at the linen jacket, our father's, the one that had the egg stain Martin would be remembering. He had a proper fit, didn't he, Andy, when I kindly brought the splodge to his attention? I swatted through the thick growth, my brothers miming me, exaggerating me behind my back, John telling Martin to stop making him laugh or he'd piss. I came to the place where Tekkit's boy had been bitten by a death adder. He died quickly. The respiratory system shuts down entirely. Some chaps have all the luck, eh, Martin said. Funny how when you have a purpose, the misery goes and hides. The feeling that it clung to me like wax for so long was gone, and I felt strangely buoyant. My humor returned to me, my brothers closer than they had felt in years, almost as if they were about to truly speak again. Perhaps all suicides are happy in the end. Perhaps it is at that moment that one feels the real point of it all, which, after you get yourself born, is to die. It's the one thing each and every one of us is programmed for, directed to, and cannot swerve away from indefinitely. Even my father, also dead, would have to agree with that. Was this how Martin felt marching toward Piccadilly? That's how I'd always imagined it. Not walking or running, but marching. Marching, like John marching to the war that ate him. And then the gun, from his pocket to his ear. Not his temple, but his ear. They had made that clear for some reason. As if he had just meant to stop hearing, not stop living. Had the metal touched skin? Had he paused to feel the cold of it? Or was it all done in a moment? One smooth gesture. Had he laughed? I could only see Martin laughing at that moment. Nothing had ever been particularly serious to Martin. Certainly not a young man in Piccadilly with a gun to his ear. That's what bothered me so much when I heard, when the headmaster came and fetched me from French class. Why had Martin been so serious about that one thing? Couldn't he have been serious about something else? And so why was this so hard for you, and how did you finally sort of nail it? I, I guess I chose this not because it was so hard. I, in fact, I chose it because it surprised me so much when it came out. I I thought that I would be writing third person, a man very frustrated, very miserable, uh, trying maybe dabbling in the idea of committing suicide while he's in the middle of his field work. Um, in the Sepik River of um, the territory of New Guinea. And uh, and in fact, what came out was a first-person, very personal, stream-of-conscious memories of his dead brothers. Uh, and it just, the way it came out truly surprised me, and it changed everything about the book for me, because it, even though it took me a little while to accept it, I... I did know once I'd written it that this was my voice, you know, this was my guy and he was the one who was going to tell this whole story. And that was such a surprise to me, Not was not part of the plan at all. Where do you write? Um, I write in my office in Portland, Maine, or uh, in a little room on the third floor of our house. And what do you do or where do you go to get away from writing? I usually go and see friends, or I go running, or I play tennis. Um, I I often read to sort of replenish. If I'm feeling frustrated and sort of dried up, I will just, instead of writing for the day, I'll just make a cup of tea and, and read a book that I've been really wanting to read for a long time. Um, I also love to travel, but I don't get to do that as much as I'd like. Who do you show your work to first to get feedback? My husband always sees it first. I always give it to him first. And then um, after 
uh, it goes through him, then I give it to my writer's group. How have you dealt with rejection? You know, I guess I, I try to figure out if I agree with the reason why it's being rejected. And if I do, then I go back and I try to, you know, fix it. Um, I, and if I don't agree, then I sort of decide, well, maybe it just hasn't reached the right hands yet. And I I really try not to take it personally you know, and not see it as an indictment of my my own, my character or my self-worth or anything, you know. And what is your favorite word? I suppose my favorite concept is cozy. That was the that was the thing I came up with. I just I, I like I like the word cozy and I like it when things are cozy. <laughs> You've been listening to First Draft on Aspen Public Radio. My guest was Lily King, author of the novel Euphoria. You can hear the show again online at aspenpublicradio.org and also hear extra features from the interviews and learn more about the authors. You can follow First Draft on Facebook. Just look for First Draft on Aspen Public Radio and click like, and on Twitter at First Draft APR. I'm Mitzi Rapkin. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening to this show from Aspen Public Radio. Archive podcasts, news, and more are made available thanks to the support of listeners like you. To make a donation of support, log on to aspenpublicradio.org. And thanks.